Luke chapter 4, if you'll find your place there this morning, I wanted to speak to the subject of the Messiah. I think the music this morning is beautifully set up. Everything we're going to see in this passage of Scripture uh, that we're going to look at, where Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth. Uh, immaculately dressed father was lying down on the ground holding his son. He had a uniform coat on. He had a tie. He was holding that little boy in his arms and doing what fathers do, playing with his son. They were rolling around. They were wrestling and laughing and tickling and, and just having a really, really good old time. In fact, he even put the little boy on his back and kind of carried him around as if he was riding a horse. And the father, realizing the time, took his son over and kind of set him down and stood up straightened his coat and fixed his tie and then walked to a double set of French doors, grabbed hold of those handles and pulled the doors open. As he did so, that young boy right behind his father wanted to still play. He's chasing after Zed, but as those doors slung open, the boy later said, and I quote, I could hear a thousand thousands heel, thousand thousand heels click together and a thousand thousand hands slap against their side. Peered over the balcony, I saw thousands of men standing at attention, saluting my father. I was in that moment, or it was in that moment, I should say, I, I realized that he was more than my dad. You're probably wondering who this little boy was. His name was David. He was named after his dad. His dad's name was Dwight David Eisenhower. And little David Eisenhower said later on, I realized, again, in that moment, he was more than my dad. I realized he was the supreme allied commander who would send hundreds of thousands of men into battle to die for the freedom of the western world but before that moment before walking out onto that balcony before hearing those heels click and those hands slap to the side and men standing to attention little david eisenhower never wondered about what his dad did vocationally the only thing he knew about his dad was he was dad he was the guy who played with me on the floor he's the guy who wrestled he's the guy who tickled me he's the guy who had a fun time, an enjoyable time, and made my day so great. In one sense, David was too close to his father to recognize anything else about him. Now, I'm not going to say that's a wrong thing. That's a good thing. But what we see in David Eisenhower and his inability to see what else his dad was, I think we're going to see in this passage as we look in Luke chapter 4 and picking up in verse 14, we're going to see the same thing happening in the lives of those who lived in Nazareth with Jesus. You see, Jesus was the hometown boy who had become pretty famous around the Galilee area. Their familiarity with Jesus, however, prevented them from recognizing him, from seeing him, from understanding him to be the Messiah. So if you got your copy of God's Word, let's read there. Luke chapter 4, let's begin in verse 14. We're going to read through verse 30. Luke tells us this. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom... He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
He rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you, do, you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. It's an interesting passage of Scripture here. The incident, as we have just read, this incident in Nazareth, although placed first in Jesus' ministry, recorded here by Luke in his gospel, was not first chronologically. Uh, rather, what Luke does is he is using it, he's placing it here because it serves his orderly purpose. Chronology is not as important in the Hebrew mind, in that mind, in that day and age, as it would be to us. If we were writing a history of the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus today in our Western mindset, we would do everything chronologically. But that's not the case as the gospel writers are laying out their gospels. And so chronology is not as important. What's important for the gospel writer is the message. What's the purpose for which he's writing? How do these stories work in fashion to tell the story? And so more than likely, the miracles in Capernaum that Jesus references have already taken place. We're going to get into that in the next few weeks. But they've taken place, and so now he's coming to Nazareth, and the people have heard those things. They're hearing what Jesus is saying, and they're going to, and they are calling for him to prove his Messiahship, prove that he is who he says he is. And so Jesus' ministry of preaching and healing, as we're going to read this text, one thing we also need to see is it is a it's a way that gives him the platform upon which to engage in the synagogue worship service. He's invited to read, as we've just read there. Why was he invited to read? It's because he already has a preaching platform out there in the Galilean area, and people have heard about this. And so as he comes to Nazareth, as he comes to the synagogue, he's invited to read part of the scriptures. Luke indicates here in verses 14 and 15, sort of a summary of everything, that Jesus was popular in Galilee, that his fame was spreading throughout the region. And so when he did come to Nazareth, Jesus worshipped in the synagogue on the Sabbath, just as he did in every town. It's something we need to understand about synagogue worship. Synagogues were houses of prayer. There were places where the people of God, the Jewish people, would gather to pray and to read the scriptures together. We learn in the Mishnah, Details about synagogue worship. For instance, the service would have begun with the singing from Psalms 145 to 150, those songs of ascension as they come to worship. 
It would have been followed by the recitation of the Shema, uh, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would have recited that together. Next, the 18 benedictions, known as the Tefillah, would have, were also recited aloud in succession. And then came the reading of Scripture. An officer, as Luke says here, an attendant would have went and got the copy of the, 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 the Torah, the copy of the scroll. He would have brought it out of its place. He would have removed its cloth covering, opened it up to his designated uh, place in the scripture, placed it on the table for various readers to come and to read from the Torah. Then it would have been replaced into its place of, of uh, rest, and then they would have grabbed a scroll from the prophets, the Haftarah, and it would have been read as well. Then all of that would have fo been followed by a sermon. The service was then closed with the Arianic benediction in which the people pronounced amen after each division. You probably remember the Arianic benediction. The Lord make his faith or the, the Lord bless you and keep you. They would have said amen. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. They would have said amen. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. And the synagogue service would have concluded. Luke explains that worship in the in the synagogue was the custom of the Lord Jesus. Now, I just want to say something here on the sort of parenthetical in, in all of this. It was the custom of Jesus to gather with the people of God on the Sabbath every single week. If that was the custom of the Lord Jesus, should it not also be the custom of the Lord's people to gather with the church every single week? We should gather regularly. Just saying that parenthetical because it says it in the text. Amen? don't know if I'm going to get tomato stoned, but I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here pretty much, right? In this day and age in which we live, there's so many people who would call themselves Christians and, and, and they're members of churches, and, and some of them are members of our church, and they, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a believer. I just don't see that church is important. I don't, obviously, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Sure, that's true, but you have to go to church to be a good Christian, right? You know, to learn and be encouraged in the faith, and so we need to, to make that discipline, spiritual discipline, a, a priority in our lives. Jesus gathered with the people of God, as was his custom. Well, let's continue to walk through this text, and I want to lay it all out to you. Then I want to bring some thoughts, and then I want to give you two sobering truths that we learn from this passage about Jesus and the fact that he is the Messiah. So Jesus' miracles and ministry, going back to the fact that he's already started his ministry before he comes to Nazareth, his miracles, his ministry that he's been uh, engaged in has opened this door for ministry within the synagogue. And so when he would come to visit a town, he would go to worship in the synagogue. He didn't just participate. He engaged and helped lead that because he was invited. And so on this day, it was very likely that Jesus was asked by the synagogue leader to read the Haftarah. And Jesus, and I don't know if I'm saying that right, and Jesus requested that it be the copy of Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah. And so Jesus unrolls that scroll. He begins to read from the passage there. And what is he reading? I told you last week it was Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. It's also part of Isaiah 58, verse 6. And what Jesus did is he read that, but he left out a couple lines. For instance, he left out the line and the day of vengeance of our God there in 61, verse 2. 
By omitting that line, by omitting some of those things that were some of the elements in that, Jesus got the attention of the people. One thing we need to know about the Jewish mind, the Jewish believer back then, is they knew the Word of God. They knew the Word of God. In fact, most of it was oral. They understood the Word of God because they had heard it orally. They, they didn't have copies like we did. They didn't have 12 copies of the Bible on their bookshelf like I do like some of you do. They had no copies of the Word of God. It was expensive. So they knew the Word of God because they heard it and were able to memorize it. So as Jesus omits certain things, he catches their attention. And so as he sits down, Luke tells us that every eye was fixed upon him. Every eye is looking at Jesus. And so he takes the liberty. Today, this has been fulfilled in your presence. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled. What's Jesus saying there? I believe he's saying two things. First, he's saying the consolation of Israel promised long before Isaiah found its ultimate expression in him. All that Israel's been longing for, all that Israel's been looking for, all that Israel's been waiting for has now found its expression in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the message he is preaching. And then second, what he's saying is, is that while the day of vengeance of our God is going to come, it was not being fulfilled on that day. On that day, Jesus is declaring the favor of the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor. So Luke informs us that all the people spoke well of Jesus. You know, it's quite possible he said more than what Luke here records uh, for us because the people are marveling at his gracious words. Now, if he just says, he reads the scripture and says, today this has been fulfilled in your presence, in your hearing, what Luke gives us doesn't really jive, at least in my mindset. So it seems that Jesus preached more. Jesus taught more. But Luke doesn't give us all of those details. But what he does tell us is that the people were watching. The people were mesmerized. The people were marveling over the words and the graciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what did he say if he preached? Well, perhaps he gave an exposition of the four classes of people laid out in that uh, those verses of scripture from Isaiah. Maybe he talked about the poor. Maybe he talked about the captives and the blind and the oppressed. Who are the poor? This term that's translated to poor can refer to every kind of poverty. But here it seems the emphasis is on the, the conscious, moral, and spiritual poverty of people. Jesus used the same word in the first beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. The term translated captives technically means prisoners of war. Here it refers broadly to many forms of spiritual bondage. The term that's translated blind speaks of darkness, that is spiritual darkness. And then the term translated oppressed literally means broken in pieces. It means shattered or crushed. So what Jesus is saying in all of this is that he comes to those squashed by life's circumstances. He comes to those who see no way out of their situation. He comes to those who find living itself to be an oppression to them. And he gives them freedom. That's good stuff. Now, if you understand that that's likely what Jesus was talking, you can understand why the people were, I mean, every eye is on the guy. Every eye is watching him as he goes and sits down. They're marveling over his words. They just, they just can't believe it because why? Isn't this Joseph's son? Who is this guy? He's a stone worker. He, he's a guy that works in building buildings and, and preparing homes. Who is this guy that speaks so eloquently, that has this command of the language, that has the logic and the insight? Who is this guy? Is this not Joseph's son? 
I don't think they were necessarily asking that question in some sort of derogatory manner. I don't think they were trying to disparage Jesus. I think they're trying to understand Jesus. And yet in that, you can't help but see there's a little bit, some level of cynicism. Is this not Jesus? Or is this not Joseph's son, Jesus? How can he speak like this? They're trying to figure it out. You see, they had watched Jesus grow up. He's the hometown boy. They knew Jesus. Now, what did they know about Jesus? They knew he was a good guy. They know they'd never heard him lie. They know they'd never seen him do anything like all the other teenage boys were doing. They never crossed their parents' uh, commands. They never disobeyed what dad said. He was the good of the good type of kid. That's what they knew of Jesus. But they had no, uh, no understanding that he could speak or would speak like this. The people of Nazareth admired the words of Jesus, but they were completely unmoved by them. They were unaffected by their meaning because they had failed to see themselves in the metaphors. And I think as we walk through this, you're going to see that this morning. It's interesting that Jesus chose to not claim the people's marveling over his words as a success. He's going to do here what most preachers would never do. You know, if people start paying attention to the message we preachers are like, hey, let's give you some more of that, right? Kind of relish, and it, it just makes sense. But Jesus doesn't take their admonishment, their, their excitement, their marveling as, man, I really did something today. No, he looks at them, and he does what a typical prophet would do. He offends them. I don't know if you caught that as you read through the text. Jesus is, is admired and marveled and won in, and he is being basically about to be thrown off a cliff on the other end. So what the world happens in between those two, those two situations, being heralded as this great orator and this guy that's mesmerizing us, and now we hate this guy, we loathe this guy, we're going to leave the service early and go put him to death. What happens in the middle of all that? Jesus offends them. That's what happens. He intentionally offended the people. Now, as a preacher, you can't help but offend people. But I don't know that I've ever actually intentionally sought to offend people. I just know it's going to happen. But I don't intentionally. Jesus goes out of his way to, in, to, in, to offend these people. Why does he do that? I think it's because, I don't think, I know it's because he sees something in them that they can't see themselves. You see, they did not see him as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. They didn't see him for who he was. In fact, they refused to believe without a miraculous sign. He says, hey, you're going to say, physician, heal yourself. What you've done in Capernaum, come do here, and then we'll believe in you. And Jesus is saying, hey, you don't need that. You, you shouldn't need a sign. You shouldn't need a, uh, some sort of miracle to take place. You need to hear the words of the gospel and believe. See, Jesus understood their blindness was due to their spiritual self-sufficiency sufficiency and their pride and he's pointing that out in their lives and he's going to do so using two old testament portrayals the first one hopefully you know some of these stories but the first example he gives is from the prophet elijah and the starving widow if you remember that that story there in first uh, kings chapter 17 what's taking place is elijah has been called of God to pronounce a famine over the land. It's been happening for three years and six months. And so there's no food, there's no crops. This woman is at her last 
uh, bit of food. And so she basically is going out there to build a fire to take the what little bit of flour and oil she has. She's going to bake a small cake for herself, give some to her son, and then they're going to die of starvation. That's what's going on here. Elijah comes to her and says, uh, he kind of asks her what's going on. She explains and he says, before you do that, make me a cake and then go make one for yourself and your son which makes no sense. Well, that's the most selfish thing you could ever ask, right? Here's a widow who has no provisions, no help, no more food. She's going to eat and die, and you're asking for a piece of what she's going to eat. And yet she does. She goes and makes the cake. She gives to the prophet, and then she goes and makes for her son. And the Bible tells us that as long as Elijah lived with her, she never ran out of food. What's the point in all of this? What Jesus is pointing out here is that the Gentile woman recognized her poverty before God, and the Jews here in Nazareth do not recognize that. This comparison was an incredible insult to the people of Nazareth. The second example comes from the story of the prophet Elisha, who came after Elijah, and Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army. So again, you've got a Gentile, but not just a regular Gentile, the commander of a Gentile nation that's an antagonistic uh, opposition against the people of God. And so this commander, Naaman, was a leper, and one of his servants was a young Jewish girl, and she tells him, there's a prophet in Israel who can heal you. Why don't you go and see the prophet? And so he finally decides, he comes down to see the prophet, and Elisha tells him, go bathe in the Jordan River seven times. You think, well, that's a pretty simple thing. Well, for Naaman, this is an insult. Number one, if you've been to Israel, you know the Jordan River is not the prettiest river in the world. In fact, he even says, Naaman says, there's seven better rivers in, in Syria that I could go wash in. And yet you're telling me to go wash in this nasty, stanky, muddy cesspool called the Jordan River? And so he refuses to do, to do that. But his, his servants encourage him, and he goes and he does what the prophet says. And in all of that, he is healed. He is convinced to do this humiliating thing, and God cures him. Well, the people of Nazareth are enraged at this comparison. They interrupted the service at this point. They drive Jesus out of the town to the top of the hill, and they intended to throw him down the cliff to kill him on the rocks below. Big question in all this. Why had their emotions gone from marvel and praise to wrath and murder? Why, why had they gotten to this this anger and, and hatred over the Lord Jesus. It was simply because Jesus had cut through their comfortable religious facade, and in response, they were going to kill him. And think about what day this is. It's the Sabbath. This is the day that you're not supposed to do any work. And so killing someone, I think that's work, right? I think that's work. Jesus would have been thrown off the cliff, but there at the top, Luke tells us, he passed through their midst and went away. Jesus demonstrates the fact that he is the son of God. He's sovereign over all this. A couple of pictures I want you to see here. A couple of weeks ago, some of us stood there on what is marked as the precipice where this took place. Nazareth is now a big city. It's the largest Arab city in the nation of Israel. So it's much bigger than it was back then. But you can clearly see where they would have marched out of old Nazareth up the, the, the breach of the hill, the, the, the top of the hills. It goes up, and you come to the top here, and you can see the valley below, and you can see the jagged rocks down below as well. Go to the next picture there. 
That's what Jesus would have been thrown off onto. And if he wouldn't have died by hitting his head on the boulders below, they would have picked up stones and finished him off. But Jesus turns and just walks straight through. That, that's the beauty of this whole, one of the beauties of this whole passage is that Jesus was in complete control of the whole thing. Well, Luke placed this story at the outset of Jesus' public ministry and following the baptism and temptations which we've already seen to, to show Theophilus, to show us today as we read the, the gospel here that Jesus is the Messiah. That he's putting all of this here to show us that Jesus enters the brokenness of people's lives with the promise of rescue and deliverance. You see, as the Messiah, Jesus receives all kinds of different receptions. Sometimes he is received as the Lord. Sometimes people accept him as the Messiah. Sometimes people reject him. You see, not everyone who says they believe even actually believe. And that's what we kind of see going on here in Nazareth. Jesus' sermon seems to be aimed, I believe, at nominal believers. People would say, I'm absolutely a believer. I'm actually a a, a child of God. I I believe in God. I trust in God. I'm walking with God. And yet it's nothing more than name only. It's nothing more than nominal faith. That's who the people of Nazareth were, a bunch of nominal believers. And Jesus speaks to this because he knows this about them. So with that said, let me give you three thoughts for nominal believers, and we're going to do this fairly quickly. Why are y'all laughing? (laughs) Fairly is a general term. That means whatever I want it to mean. Number one, first thought I have for nominal believers, you can be entertained without being transformed. Did you hear that? You can be entertained without being transformed. Remember, the people of Nazareth enjoyed the sermon. They enjoyed what they were hearing from the Lord Jesus, but they were not moved by it. It didn't get down from their head to the heart. Most likely, they knew the passage Jesus was reading from that day. It caught their attention, but it never grabbed their heart. It's kind of like us sometimes. We come to church, we sit in a service, and, and man, we are moved. We love the music. We love singing those songs. We even felt a little tingly feeling going up our spine, or maybe your skin was crawling. I remember as a teenager, I loved how my home church kind of entered to the, the, the worship centers, the choir and orchestra and everything played, and the choir, which was probably 150 to 200 people, would crisscross in the aisles, and it was this big show, and music was great, and it just gave me this, woo, Holy Spirit's here today type of feeling problem with all of that. I was, I was as lost as a goose in a hailstorm. I know some of you don't understand that expression, but I, I was lost in those times, but I had this tingly feeling because of it. Sometimes we'll come and we'll hear a sermon and we'll go up to the pastor afterward and say, man, that was the greatest sermon I ever heard in my life. I'm, all, I'm grateful for that. I'm glad that's, that's how you feel. Sometimes we even say, man, I wish so-and-so could have heard that today. They needed that. The question is, did you need it, right? You see, we can be entertained without being transformed. How many times have we felt or expressed sentiments like that? Hopefully, weekly, we feel that the Lord and uh, 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 sense the Lord's moving in our hearts and our lives. But Jesus' point here was to show that there's so much more that he wants to do in our lives. Jesus wants to transform you. We sang about that this morning. Jesus is not just in the business of making you religious. Jesus is not in the business of, of kind of coating the outside of your life and making everything look good on the outside. No, he knows that the inside is the most important part. 
That's why he was so hard on the, the religious people in his day. That's why he was hard on the Pharisees. Because outwardly, they looked the part. They played the part. They knew the Bible. They, they knew the ritual. They knew the religion. They, they did all of the things that looked good. But inside, he says, you're full of dead men's bones. You're nothing but a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones, rotting and decaying. So Jesus is in the business of transformation. He's not in the business of entertainment. He wants to make you new. Secondly, the second thought, you can be familiar without recognizing. Those in Nazareth enjoyed Jesus' sermon. They thought he was a nice preacher, but they were too familiar with him to recognize who he really was. They, they couldn't get past the fact he was Joseph's son from their perspective. So again, they knew the passage that Jesus was reading from. They were familiar with the Torah. They knew the prophets. Their familiarity, however, was the reason for their inability to recognize Jesus. Familiarity can be dangerous, if not deadly. It really can. You think about how many car accidents happen really close to your home, right? Or of the driver's home. I shouldn't say your home. Hopefully you're not having an accident today. But think about when we have car accidents, how close is it to home? It's not typically on the interstate as we're traveling down to Orlando for a week at Disney. No, it happens close by. Why? Because we're so familiar with what we're used to that we're not paying attention to certain other things. Even in their own home, most accidents happen in a person's home within the bathroom. Because that's where we spend a lot of our time. And so you just don't notice certain things. Maybe you come in, you don't notice that there's water on the floor and you slip and all of a sudden your back of your head's bleeding. Familiarity can be dangerous and even deadly. And so familiarity is why a lot of people do not recognize Jesus as their Savior. Now, our culture is changing, but in America, there are still many people who have just enough Bible knowledge to make them think they're okay with God but they fail to recognize who Jesus is. They fail to look any deeper than the surface. They know some of the stories. They attend church a few times a year. and They may bounce in for Easter. They may come for Christmas. They've heard some preaching on the television, on the radio. Other people have grown up in the church, and you're saturated with the Bible stories, but you're so close to those things that you can't recognize Jesus for who He is. A third thought that we see in this text you can admire without honoring. The people here admired Jesus' preaching that day. They were slapping on the back before this. As he stood, sat down, I can see, you know, just um, in, a, in a way, um, not literally, but uh, in, in a sense, coming up and just slapping on the back. Man, that was great, Jesus. Thank you for that. That's so encouraging. Thank you. The Lord's blessed me. And yet he turns it on them and says, I'm the Messiah you're nothing more than, than, than someone who is a pagan because you've not recognized me as the Messiah. But they were admiring him that day. Luke tells us that they all spoke well. They're marveling. They were proud. Hear, hear this. They were proud of their young preacher boy. I've heard that, and I don't, know, I don't hear that so much anymore. I'm getting to that age where no one calls me boy. Thank goodness they don't call me boy anymore. But I remember that. In fact, my... my, my um, Pastor I grew up under, he, he still refers to all of us guys that have been called to minister under him as, as his preacher boys, which I understand that. I hope to have some preacher boys, uh, a lot of preacher boys under me one day. But they look at Jesus and that's how they viewed him. They failed to honor him as Lord and Savior. Many people admired Jesus during his life. They admired him during his ministry. And in fact, here's, here's what happens. It's an interesting thing that takes place in Luke chapter 9. It's where Luke records it. 
Jesus takes his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. Some of us were there a few weeks ago, and it's a wicked place. And he sets them down, and he says, who do the people say that I am? And they say, man, some are saying you're Elijah, resurrected Elijah. Some say you're, you're a great prophet. Some say you are a mighty teacher. And, and they just list these different things that the people are saying about who Jesus is, trying to understand who Jesus is. Maybe you're John the Baptist. Maybe you're Elijah. Maybe you're one of the prophets. And so what they're saying is the people are, are admiring you. The people are, are marveling over you, Jesus. And then he takes it a step farther, and Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And i got to just believe the disciples were sitting there thinking, um, I don't really know how to answer this. And then Peter does Peter. And he says, you're the Christ of God. Other gospels or writers would say, you're the Christ, the Son of God. Right? Peter got it right. Peter recognized. The disciples recognized Jesus for who he was. So when we think about this, we need to understand it's dishonoring to call Jesus something less than he really is. It's dishonoring to say Jesus is a great teacher, but not saying he's also Lord and Savior. That's what the Muslims do. They honor Jesus as a great prophet, but they dishonor him by denying he is the Son of God. Hindus would say that Jesus is to be honored. He is to be worshipped. And what Hindus would do, and this is what we run into in South Asia, what Hindus do is they take Jesus and say, he's a great God, he does great things, and they put them, him on the shelf with the 300 plus million other little G-gods and say, we're going to worship him alongside the other people. That's dishonoring to the Lord Jesus. Why? Because he is the only true God. Amen. So we can admire Jesus without honor him, and many people do. But the Bible calls us to honor Jesus, and to do that, we must receive him as he really is, the Messiah, the Son of God, who alone rescues sinners from God's wrath and makes them righteous before God the Father. Honoring Jesus means we cannot be nominal in our belief. So that, those three thoughts leads us to two sobering truths. Here's the first one. Jesus always sees you regardless if you see him. Remember, they can't see Jesus for who he is, but Jesus sees them. In this passage, Jesus anticipates what the people are thinking. Remember, he stands, he reads, he preaches, he sets, people watch, and he answers. Today, this has been fulfilled in you. And they're thinking, <laughs> and all of a sudden, he begins to give a sermon about why they couldn't recognize him as the Messiah. He saw them when they couldn't even see themselves. Jesus knows our hearts. Jesus knows everything about us. He, he knows our sin. He, he knows our need for a Savior. I mean, we can't see those things until he opens our eyes to that. And so today, our eyes may be, might be opening to the reality that Jesus sees you and has always seen you. And there's people in our church who are moving in that direction right now. For many years, perhaps you've lived your life day in and day out without any thought of God, His Word, or uh, your sin. You've been living in active rebellion against God, and yet God is beginning to open your eyes to that reality. The fact that He's watched over you, the fact that He's calling you and caring for you, He's pursuing you, and today He's doing all of that. Why? Because Jesus sees your sin and he knows your need for forgiveness and he's calling you to himself. This is great news that Jesus sees you even when you can't and won't see him. The second sobering truth is that some rejections are final. I'm going to argue from silence here for just a moment. 
But Jesus here preached this incredible sermon in Nazareth. People are marveling over that. Jesus saw and understood their spiritual need. He knew they were nominal in their belief and that there was no depth to their spiritual lives. They were dead in sin and trespasses, as Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2. The people of Nazareth rejected Jesus as Lord and Savior that day. That's what happened. How do you know that? Well, when you go to a town and you stand up and you preach and they try to cast you off the cliff, I think that means they rejected you. Don't know. Steve, have you ever had that happen to you? I've had some churches, I think, want to run me out of town. They've never actually done that. So my day's coming, maybe. But they rejected him that day. What's the big deal about that? If you read through the rest of this gospel and the other three gospels, I don't believe you'll ever see Jesus return to the town of Nazareth. Never again comes. Now, is that because they tried to cast him off a cliff? Maybe. I mean, I mean, if, you, if somebody wants to kill you, you probably don't return there very often. I don't know. That's me reading into it. Obviously, God was in control of the whole situation. He passed through them, right? I mean, he just turned and walked. They had no control over him whatsoever. But here's what I want you to get. Some rejections are final. It seems like, argument from silence, that Nazareth had one opportunity to faith into Jesus. They chose not to, and so they never had another opportunity. Now, I'm not saying that to scare any of anyone in here. I don't know who has multiple opportunities. I don't know who has one opportunity. But what we see here is a sobering truth that there is not always another opportunity. But that's what people want to think. They think they're always going to have another opportunity to put their faith in Jesus. Here's what a lot of people would love to do. Live their lives like they want to. Sow wild oats, live like hell, do all the things they've always dreamed of doing. Live in just utter sin. Come to the end of their life on their deathbed, cry out to Jesus and be saved. That's what a lot of people would love to do. Live like hell, live like the devil, and then be gloriously enslaved and spend the rest of eternity living for Jesus Sounds like a good deal, right? You don't know all the misery that comes with all of the other stuff. But here's what you also don't know, that you'll actually have that opportunity. I would argue that the vast majority of people, you get to that last day, you're not going to have an opportunity. Your hearts become calloused. Your hearts become colder and harder and harder and harder. And you get to that point, and you're so hardened to the things of God that God is, if he is speaking to you and calling you, you can no longer hear that. So you can't respond. Some rejections are final. David Eisenhower, the young boy, obviously loved playing and wrestling with his father. But it never occurred to him that his father held any other position than dad. Dad of the Eisenhower house. You see, his familiarity prevented him from recognizing anything else about his dad's life and role. And as you look at the people of Nazareth, you see that familiarity can be dangerous and even deadly. You see, like those people, we can grow up around the things of God and miss God completely. We can be comfortable. We can know the stories of the Bible. Hey, we can quote scripture. We can have perfect attendance in small group our, our whole lives. I remember back in the day in Southern Baptist life, you got these pins for your attendance. And so a lot of people would have perfect attendance and they'd have that thing just kind of draping down to their, their belt. They're so faithful in their attendance. That predates me a little bit. I'm not that old, but I've heard about these things. Marilyn, I know you're over there smiling. <laughs> See, you can believe Jesus is who he says he is without being a believer. How do you know that? The demons of hell believe 
and shudder. It's not about believing Jesus. It's about believing on him for salvation. And Jesus comes to those who are squashed by the circumstances of life. He comes to those who see no, absolutely no way out, who find living to be an oppression. And what Jesus does is he offers us freedom. And so this morning, Jesus is giving to us the same offer he was giving to those in Nazareth. Come to me. Recognize that I'm the Son of God. I'm the Messiah. And that I can give and will give you freedom. This morning, if you're not a believer, I've got good news for you. Good news is God has created you, which means he loves you. The bad news is you're a sinner, but the best news means there is forgiveness available through what Jesus has done for us. For those of us who are believers, what do we take from this this morning? Let's never allow ourselves to become so familiar with the things of God that we become numb to God himself. Ricky began our service talking about the spirit of the living God fall fresh on me. That ought to be a prayer of our lives every single day, that I can walk fresh with God, close to God, that my heart would be tender to the word of God and the spirit's movement in our lives. Not familiar? Let's change the terminology. Let's be personable with the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. And we are so grateful for how you minister to our lives. It's amazing as we read through the Gospels and see how you act and react differently with different groups of people based upon the needs for their lives. And here, Lord, you are given a strong rebuke. And Lord, we need that. We need that from time to time. Lord, perhaps even this morning, there's folks here watching us online. There's folks here in the room who need to hear the rebuke of the Lord Jesus in their lives. Maybe they have become familiar with the things of God, but they've never come to God and trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray for them that this morning, this day, would be the day of salvation for them. God, I pray for believers in this room who know and have a genuine relationship with you as Lord and Savior. But Lord, we have a tendency to just become comfortable. God, our prayer is that the Spirit of God would fall fresh upon us again that we would not be complacent in our faith, that we would not be nominal even, just going through the motions. But God, we would pray, we would ask, we would beg that you give us hearts that are hot for you, ears that are open to hear, eyes that can see. Lord, a, a, a pliable, a pliability in our, in our countenance that we are soft, not hard. Lord, as we move into a time of response, we just pray that your spirit would move, that you would open our hearts to respond in however and whatever way we need to today. God, whatever your spirit's impressing upon us, help us to respond. We thank you for your grace and your love for us. Even pointing these things out is the love and the grace of the Lord Jesus. And so we praise you for that. Give us freedom to respond, Lord, in Jesus' name. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.